Welcome to The Root Podcast, a show about men and mental health, where we share stories of transformation and overcoming. I'm your host, Ruth Ann Kroll. Okay, today on the podcast, we have Daniel Petros. He is a culinary master here in Calgary, and we actually know each other from a very well-known cafe called Analog, best spot in the city, in my opinion, for coffee. So yeah, Daniel is a master in the culinary arts, and um, he's really utilized his gifts to serve the community. So Daniel, take it away. Tell us more about your food journey. Well, thank you, Ruthann, for having me and for all your kind words, but uh, I would like to make one correction. <laughs> I'm not a culinary master, you know, I'm forever learning. Yeah, food is definitely my passion. It's probably the biggest vehicle for self-expression for me. It's creative, you know, it's a creative endeavor. And uh, it's something that for me allows me to communicate and share a lot of things about who I am as a person, what I believe in. I think it's a gentle way to, to affect and introduce, you know, everything from my political views, my philosophical views, my views on, on, on my economic perspective, health, living with intention, you know, just it's a really nice way for me to connect with people, right? Uh, food is an important part of life. And I'm grateful for the fact that, uh, you know, it's something that I've that that I've loved doing for a long time, and being something that is such a central part of every everybody's life that I get to pursue and work, you know, in a profession in an avenue is something that I love that is really accessible to everybody. It, it's an, you know everybody has to eat, right? And so being somebody who's engaged in culinary arts and who loves food and sharing it, it just gives you such a big vehicle for connecting with people. Right. It's, right. A, it's a way to communicate. It's almost like another language in a way. Yeah. You know, like not everybody has, you know, has accounting to do. You right. Know? <laughs> so if I was an accountant, I'd probably have lesser opportunity, right. you know, to share in that space in a meaningful way with people. Absolutely. I think that's so great. And then using your guests to serve other people. I want to go back to when you first got into food. Back in Vancouver, I remember we were chatting about you going to culinary school there. Mm -hmm. And so what originally sparked your interest in, in food? Well, I think like a lot of chefs, I think my family of origin was obviously something that played a crucial fact factor in where I ended up and what, in my interest in food, you know. I was born in a country called Eritrea, you know, we immigrated, spent my childhood in Nairobi and we moved to Canada. And so compared to a lot of typical Canadian kids that I grew up with, we probably ate food from scratch mm. more so than anybody that I knew, you know? And so, yeah, we are, I was really blessed to have a mom that is an amazing cook and my dad is also a great cook. You know, so we always had great food, something that's very important in my culture. You know, we have a big kinship system. So food has always been a big part of connection in our family, right? And so, yeah, like the first thing that I, my mom taught me how to make was scrambled eggs when I was six, you know? Amazing. Yeah. And so really that's where it started. And then I think when I got into university, I was studying political science and living on my own at the age of 19. And 
had no clue really about any how to cook. I just loved to do it, so I did it. But you know, the reoccurring theme over those early years was that whenever I cooked, all my friends were really impressed. You know, and the conversation was always like, "Oh, you should be a chef. You should be a chef." And it's like, no, that was never an option coming from an immigrant family where you're supposed to be a doctor, a lawyer, some type of professional in that sense. You know, so it was never an option. And the key moment actually that transpired. Fast forward a few years later. I was living in Calgary, actually here for about a year, back in 1997, and I left in the fall of 1998. And I got a job as a waiter at a restaurant called Fusion, which occupied at the time the current space where the living room is on 17th Ave between 4th and 5th Street Southwest. And there was two brothers that I had gone to high school with. Uh, one, uh, the older guy was Jamie, and the guy that was my age, my friend, was 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 Dwayne, and. One of them worked, you know, he ran the bar and the other guy was a front end, front of house guy. So they got me a job as, as a waiter. And the guy who opened the restaurant, I forget his last, his last name, but his name was Chris. And he had graduated from the California Culinary Academy in San Francisco. And so California Fusion was kind of just getting, you know, coming into the world. You know, California was gaining its, its, its voice on the international food scene. So the guy came here and he opens this restaurant. And Calgary was very much steak and potatoes. Like all the way back then, you know, it's changed a lot. And so I got a job as a waiter and I think the second or third day that we were open, somebody in the back, part of the kitchen team didn't show up. So Chris asked, you know, management out front that somebody from the front had to come back to the, to to the kitchen to help out. And uh, the two boys, Jamie and Dwayne, the two brothers Having known my cooking from university, we're like, oh, he's a, Daniel's a great cook. So you have to jump back there. So I was like in shock, filled with fear. I'm like, I'm not a professional chef. I like to cook. But so I had to go to the back. And as soon as I got back there and I saw what, what Chris was doing, it was that was the moment. Like I just saw what was happening and being a part of it, forced into it. That was the universe putting me in the right place at the right time. And really working with him on a part-time basis really opened my eyes. And I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do. And at that point, I hadn't finished my university. I was kind of like messing around trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life really, you know. And so, but that was the moment, you know, I knew as soon as I got there, the first night that I got thrown back there, I knew I wanted to be a chef. And so, you know, I, I slowly started making my plans to do that, make my way west and that's really the the moment that turned it all. Take me a little bit deeper into that moment. What about that sparked something for you? Um, what did you feel? What did you observe? How did you know? I think from an observational standpoint, A, I think self-will is something that, you know, I've, I've struggled with, you know, for a lot of my own problems are a creation of my own self-will, right? So in that instance, for example, just from the perspective that I'm sitting in now, I understood that something outside of myself forced me to be there. I was there to work as a waiter. And all of a sudden, I get told, you're going to be working the back. So that idea and that circumstance was not born of my idea. You know, it wasn't something that emanated from me. And so I think when I got back there, like the reality was I worked at that restaurant. I got a job there because I was very much into food. Right. I was a good waiter. It was always a good way to make money. And I always loved food, good food, especially, you know, and I knew this was going to be something cutting edge for the city, especially. But when I got back there, as I said, it was just 
a combination of things, but really the most important aspect of it was that I saw a guy that had pursued an education in California, came to Calgary, and was going to do something that nobody else was doing here. And when I, it became tangible for me, right? It became tangible. A, here's a guy that I would look up to. He's opening this restaurant on 17th Ave, you know, on the most important strip in the city. And he's doing something that's going to affect the culture of the city. So it helped me mute out a lot of the ideas that I had about what I was capable of doing or what pursuits I could do. And in a sense, a big piece of that was that really that decision in that moment put me in a place where I could be honest about what I wanted as opposed to what my family wanted from me. Wow. Right? A lot of the familial pressure to be this or that or that, you know, that moment allowed me to sort of break free of those of those shackles. Mm-hmm. And you don't understand, you know, all the time how important certain places are and certain moments are. But, you know, I truly believe now had, had that not happened, maybe I wouldn't be sitting in this position that I'm in now. Mm-hmm. Right. But when I saw what Chris was doing, it was just like, bang, the lights went on. You know? Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then from that point, is that when you pursued it? Because I know you're talking about going to Vancouver. Was it then after that moment in time that you decided to pursue it in a more professional way? Yes. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's it's important to say, you know, that at, at that point too, like there was a lot of, I had a lot of issues and we'll probably get into that a little bit later, but, you know, there was a lot of personal issues in my life. I was living, you know, in addiction, you know, cocaine had come into the picture quite in a pretty heavy way in that year that I was here. Uh, nevertheless, yeah, I made the decision at that point that I was going to make my way to Vancouver. I started doing a little bit of research and decided that I was going to go to the Pacific Institute of Culinary Arts, but I wanted to work in some more fine dining establishments before. And I eventually made my way to Whistler and worked at a, at a four-star restaurant called Fogata up there. And then, you know, just started really saving money and pursuing you know, education and putting in the time to, to be a chef, you know, so that's where it started really. Yeah. So I didn't go to chef school until 2000, right? So I ended up working in Whistler for a year. And previous to that, I worked at uh, a spot called the Thatch on Hornby Island where, you know, I was serious about it, you know, and I got, I was lucky. I got a, a position there to sort of man this buffet for dinner that they did at this little island. I got to make up my own menu every day. So I remember then, you know, I was watching a lot of Food Network, a lot of, you know, really just getting into it. Yeah. And finding inspiration from different chefs on TV and started reading and buying books, you know. But then, yeah, made my way to chef school. And and then there's a parallel track to that. You know, as I'm doing that, my addiction is also getting heavier and heavier, you know. So there was always a balancing act, you know, of really trying to be who you are against this demon that's inside you getting bigger as well. For sure. Did you find going through chef school in the midst of a progressive addiction, did you find that helpful in that season? I think like, well, if, you know, for anybody that is familiar with the hospitality industry, uh, addiction runs quite rife, you know, so the school part, obviously, that there wasn't all of my instructors weren't doing cocaine and, and drinking school, you know, that was a different story. But I was working uh, at a restaurant full time 
And then even in my apprenticeships over the four or five year period that I was in Vancouver post post finishing school, yeah, like there's a lot of drinking and drugging that happens in that industry. And yeah, like two of my formative chefs, I'll leave their names out of it, were serious cocaine addicts, you know, and in my final year and a half of working in Vancouver before I moved to Calgary, yeah, I mean, 10 o'clock every night, I would make the call for my chef to the dealer. We would get some cocaine, you know, and at that point, 10 o'clock, all the bar staff knew to bring us all a couple doubles. You know, I used to drink gin. Gin was my drink. Gin and tonic with a splash of cranberry. So at 10 o'clock, two of those, two doubles, the dealer would come, you know, the restaurant's getting ready to close. And that's that's how we did it, you know. So, you know, and, and when you're in it, obviously, you don't see it as destructive as it is. You know there's a part of you that knows, but it's just like everybody's doing it. And it's not has nothing to do with peer pressure. That was how I was in it. And as the disease progressed, my ability to choose when I could do it, manage it, control it, all these justifications that you built around it became harder and harder to tow, you know? So yeah, of course, now from looking at, at the vantage point now, yeah, like it was like doing things with one arm and one leg tied behind your back, right? You know, there's a serious level of compromise that you're making being able to operate at 100% up to your capacity, you know? But I think, you know, at the end of the day, all of it was a part of the journey. You know, my addiction would get a lot worse when I came here and, but the recovery process, you know, came into the picture and, you know, I was able to reconnect to my cooking, you know, and so we're in a different place now, but yeah, definitely like, yeah, it was a, a big part of, of, of the picture in the industry. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, that must've been difficult as you're mentioning, um, being surrounded by other people who are also actively using and it sounds like it was, yeah, very much part of the culture. I also worked in the restaurant industry for actually quite a number of years and I can, I didn't get too deep into that, but I know like alcohol was definitely a problem for a lot of people, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Amongst other things that I didn't get to see, but yeah. So kind of coming off that, like, so you're in the restaurant industry, you're surrounded by people who are kind of also addicts, as you're mentioning. Was there anyone else that you were surrounded with at that time that was maybe a positive influence or what did that look like for you? Yeah, definitely. You know, I think the reality is this, you know, things operate on, on parallel tracks, you know. So I think from the beginning where addiction starts at the age of 14 as it moves forward and progresses, you know. And at the time that we're talking about being in Vancouver, I'm around 30, right? You know, late 20s, early 30s is the period that we're talking about. And so as the disease progresses, as I get deeper, deeper into my addiction, yeah, there was always, there was people that I grew up with that lived in Vancouver that was positive. There was some family members that I knew that were out there. There was people that I had connections with. But as I got deeper into my connection, the relationships and the isolation away from those healthy relationships that aren't engaged in active addiction, that separation becomes bigger. And so it's only a natural consequence that as an addict, you sound you live and you surround by yourself on an increasing basis with people that are also addicts, right. that people that you use with because people that aren't positive, and I don't mean that addicts are negative in that sense, right? But people that 
are not like living in active addiction that had a basic <laughs> touch with reality that I didn't have, those relationships become casualties, mm-hmm. right? And so as I move deeper into my addiction, yeah, that's, you leave people behind, you know? You know, for me, it meant at an ever-increasing separation from my family, the periods of communication with them would get wider. The amount of trips that I would make at home would get bigger. And that was the case with everybody that was important in my life, you know? And so, and all of that takes a toll, you know? So you get to a point when you're living in, you know, an active addiction where there's a big degree of powerlessness, you know, at some point you, you don't have a choice. You just do it. You just use, you know? So it's very hard to stop, right? The disease is incurable, progressive, and fatal. It will kill you, right? And it kills a lot of people. So there's got to be some type of surrender that takes place at some point. And once that takes place, then I think the recovery process just works in a way where that parallel track that you were on before starts to disintegrate. And a lot of those meaningful relationships and the positive people that you had lost contact with, you're less isolated, you know, you start really having connections with the people that you really want to have connection to. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know. Yeah, exactly. We were chatting about like how powerful shame is and shame and isolation, I think go hand in hand. So maybe just, yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts in that time with the isolation, being isolated more from your friends and family. What was your thought process during that time? Yeah. During that time of isolation. Well, I think if I, was to try and put myself back mentally and emotionally in those times, you know. And when you know deep down at your core, for me, it's always important to talk about the fact that, like, nobody is born into this world. You know, when I was young, I didn't have dreams of being an addict. I've never met one single person that said, oh, I want to be a drug addict when I grow up. That's not a, an admission I've ever, ever heard ever in my life from any any addict that I've known in recovery or not, right? Everybody, you know, so for me, speaking of my experience, yeah, I had dreams. I had values and morals that I was raised with. There's lots of different factors that determine who's an addict and who isn't, right? You know, so for me, for example, some of the biggest determinants, and it's important to sort of talk about this stuff, is like in active addiction, you do live with fear and a lot of shame and guilt. I did for sure. And I know that that's true for a lot of addicts. So what are the, some of the, the things that cause that? So fear being a response that was comfortable and that I went to a lot early in my life had a lot to do with my relationship with my father growing up because it was fear-based. Mm-hmm. Right? There was lots of love there, but there was also fear, right? And so if I take myself back to that time that you're talking about, you know, and towards the end, obviously, as, as, as things get worse and worse, as you lose yourself, as you... You know, addiction took me away from that tangent. I had a certain projection, a line that I was supposed to have a life. And I knew it. Up to a certain point in my life, I knew the direction I was supposed to go in. But when addiction came in, it slowly started chipping away at that trajectory. And by the time I surrender at the age of 34, and I'm on my knees, and I've lost everything, and I'm asking for help, in a real sense, I'm going 180 degrees the other way away from that trajectory of who I was supposed to be as a a person. And so when you know that fundamentally about yourself and it's, you can drug all you want, you can drink all you want, you can numb, try and numb that reality all you want. The reality is, you know that internally. And so when you find yourself in ever increasing circumstances that are 
further and further and further away from the truth of who you're supposed to be. Shame is such a big part of it. Guilt is such a huge part of it. And the only way you know how to deal with those feelings is to try not to feel them by numbing, you know, and, you know, at a certain point, the drugs don't work, you know, so you're in a constant state of fear, shame and guilt. And so, you know, just a, a simple example is, you know, for me, at the end of it, eight months, I was homeless. I hadn't seen or talked to my daughter for over seven years. I had missed two straight Christmases at home. I had caused my parents and my loved ones a tremendous amount of worry and sleeplessness for years. And to face them, even though I wanted to stop for the last couple of years, probably the last year and a half for sure, I wanted to stop all of it, but I couldn't. I was completely powerless. And the, t the two most dominant feelings, emotional feelings that prevented me from picking up that phone and saying, I want to come home, I need help, was the shame and the guilt that I felt about how much pain that I had caused everybody. And then about knowing fundamentally the reality that I had gone straight so far off the path of who I was supposed to be. Right? So there was always a knowledge and an acknowledgement. And one of the last things that, you know, one of the things that I hung on to here, being out here in the worst of, of a heavy duty crack addiction was like, I always used to I see myself surrounded by like all these people that I'm like, what the hell am I doing here? You know, but there was a voice inside me that always said, don't forget who you are, right? You're cut from a different cloth and not in a judgmental sense, but like the reality of who my family was, who my ancestors were, my morals, my values, the dreams that I had growing up, all of that I knew it wasn't what I, where I had ended up. And so, you know, that was the one semblance of hope that I hung on to. That was a shred of, you know, something tangible that was left internally was the knowledge and the acknowledgement that internally at a, at a fundamental level that I was so far away from who my true essence was supposed to be. And so that creates a tremendous amount of shame, right? And so the people that you want to get back to, your family, your loved ones, everybody, they all become self-constructed demons that you just can't face. So, you know, it takes, in my opinion, something supernatural to give you the strength at that moment, you know, at a, at a given moment to get past that shame and the guilt and the fear and to just, you know, move towards the, the direction of, of your original trajectory of who you're supposed to be, which for me meant getting back to my family, mm. right? Because my disease had isolated me completely from everything important in my life. Right. Finding a way to journey back home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what it is. You know, yeah, really, I think returning home, it's a powerful metaphor for, for the essence of, of, of that journey. Yeah. You talked about identity in a really powerful way. How did you come to realize who and what you were meant to be? How is that so like power? It seems like that was like you said, the one thing you're holding on to, it was the hope you're holding on to. You knew that this is not who you were. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so I think, you know, like obviously now 15 plus years in recovery and living, you know, f free from active addiction and doing all the work that, that recovery demands, you get to learn a lot, right? The 12 step process really demands and, and allows you to, to shine the light internally and it, it, it's, it's, it's a process that, that contains a set of spiritual mechanics that help you come to terms with A, how you ended up where you were, but then it gives you a perfect set of 
tools and a blueprint and a set of spiritual mechanics to really make amends. You know, you begin with surrender, and then there has to be a degree of open-mindedness. You know, there has to be a, a big degree of willingness. But so from this perspective now, I think like what gave me, when you talk with that question of identity, is like, yeah, you know, as I said before, I just knew that this wasn't me. Like, and an addiction is about false identity, hmm. right? It's about not accepting who you are, not being comfortable in your own skin. At the found, you know, a lot of people start down the road of addiction because they want to fit in. Hmm. Or there's things in their lives that they don't want to deal with that are too painful becomes a coping mechanism, self-medicating. There's lots of different factors. But for me, the essence of it is that it's all about a mistaken identity of like it just you build another individual that's not who you are. There's a whole pile of masks that go with it. Right? So I think for me really like knowing ultimately I think in that moment, you know, the day that I called my parents, that I made that call, you know, that phone was heavy. You know, but making that call, I think I think fundamentally there was a part of my spirit that wasn't snuffed out yet that also knew that that's the call I had to make. That's the place that I had to go. I've always been best when I'm close to my family, plain and simple. You know, and I'm super grateful because I have a family that has always been there, you know, and, and all of us are a combination of our ancestry, right? We're not just like my mom and dad, you know, so all the ancestors, all the ancestry from before all of that DNA comes into it on many levels, right? And so for me, yeah, like calling my mom and dad and, you know, my dad was like, what the bleep do you want? And him, it was crazy because him and my mom both answered the phone at the same time. One upstairs, one downstairs. And uh, my mom just said, let me talk to him, you know? And she's like, what's up? What do you want? And I just said, I just want to come home. You know, and they were there, right? So, and that kind of points to that whole, like, really understanding that addiction and a lot of people struggle with this you don't have to be an addict but like a lot of the conversations that we have about ourselves and the things that we struggle with a lot of them aren't it's not to minimize anybody's experience but a lot of it it's a conversation between your ears it's in your mind it's not real right so like all the fear and the shame and the guilt that i had about making that phone call that was my narrative right yes Bring me to that point because I know we were chatting about getting to that point of making that phone call. There was a pretty pivotal moment that brought you there. And again, I think, you know, this is where all the experiences in your life matter, right? All the moments, right? So, you know, I was raised Roman Catholic, went to church a lot, Sunday school, you know, had a pretty in-depth knowledge of the Bible. And to this day, the Old Testament is all way more of my favorite book than the, than the New Testament. It just is. So I was, you know, as I said, you know, in the last year and a half of my addiction, I had never been arrested. All of a sudden, I'm getting arrested over and over and over. And, you know, the last time I got arrested, uh, I was in a remand center in Calgary. It got overcrowded. They sent us down to, to uh, Medicine Hat. And until that arrest, sitting in a remand for a few weeks, every other time that I'd been arrested and sitting in the Calgary remand center, the obsession was always, I need to get out of here so I can get to my drug of choice. That was the mindset. That thought never went away. So the last time I was arrested, and this was February of 2006, I found myself in the remand center for the first time independent of that, of that obsession, of those thoughts, and thinking, okay, I need to stop doing this. 
like deep down internally, there was an earnest desire not, you know, that, that, that thought, that obsession just didn't dominate. It was like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to try and stop doing this. And, you know, and at that point, my mindset was this drug of choice. I'm not going to do this. You know, I didn't understand that addiction didn't really have to do with just one substance at that point, you know, but anyway, so there I was, and I wanted to go to mass. I don't know why I just wanted to go to mass. And the first Sunday that I was in medicine had, I didn't go. And mainly because there's lots of guys from the street that I know there. And, you know, the mentality is it's bad for your cred, you know, your street cred. So I didn't go the first Sunday. And then I went the second Sunday. And the sermon was about the story of the prodigal son from the Bible, from the Old Testament. And I know you're familiar with it, right? And, you know, that story very briefly is about, you know, two brothers, an older one and a younger one. And the younger one is a party animal, you know, and he demands that his father give him half of his inheritance, you know, his half, because he wants to go do what he wants to do. And his dad gives it to him. And he leaves and runs around the world and burns his life to the ground, comes back with nothing. And upon his return, his father is so happy that, you know, he slaughters, I think, his best animal and has a massive feast for him because his son who has lost is home. And the older brother can't understand this. He's like, Man, I've been here for years helping and, and being a good son. This guy has burned and created all this misery for us. Why is he being celebrated? You know, so the moral of that story is that there's always redemption. You know, there's like the father was always waiting for his son with open arms. You know, so so when I heard that, it was a story that I knew. And it was like the first kind of like direct spiritual message that I had from God, something outside of me that said, you can go home. You know, you can go home, right? So I ended up getting out of there probably, I think a week and a half, two weeks later, a friend of mine bailed me out and said, this is the last time I bail you out, you know? And I ended up, I didn't want to go back to the street because I knew I would use. So I called an ex-girlfriend that I used to live with in Vancouver and I stayed with her for a few days. And then, you know, somehow I convinced myself that because I didn't have no money and I was, I felt like I was being a leech I needed to make some money. And the only way I knew how to make money at that point was to go sell some drugs, you know? So I called one of my dealers, got some drugs, started selling one day, and then, you know, started using, you know? And now I know that that was my addiction driving it, that decision, right? You know, strong. So anyways, I ended up somehow, you know, four or five days of using, and I ended up in a church on 14th Street. And if I thought maybe it was a consequence that the sermon was on the prodigal son when I was in Medicine Hat in the remand center. Again, how I ended up at this church, I have no clue. Because when you're do when you're doing what I was doing, church is the last place you want to be in. And the sermon was on the prodigal son again. Yeah, and it was you know, and I left that place and I had a bunch of stuff on me and I threw it down a manhole downtown, which was something I would never have done as an addict. I made that call to my parents, you know, and said I want to come home and. You know, so, yeah, and, and I think that moment, you know, that's probably the most honest I've ever been in my life was in that moment, right? You know, to just, like, say, I'm done, mm-hmm. you know? And so, you know, again, knowing fundamentally, you know, knowing that story, having that, that aspect of st- spirituality instilled in me at a certain point, you know, in my life growing up. And it was that, that story, really, that, that gave me the courage to, to call my family. Right. You know, so, you know, that, that got that gave me the push. It really just it loosened the grip of fear, shame and guilt in that moment and allowed me to make that call. It's incredible. That's such an incredible story. 
Yeah. Making the journey back home. How did that bring you back to who you were going back to the identity piece, being able to pick up that phone and and call your family and go back home, make the journey home again. And I think from its infancy, if we look at that and we talked about connection and isolation, so like, as you know, as I, as I made the point before, I've always been at my best when I'm close to my family. So after years of progressive isolation that continues and separation and you're left alone with nothing, yeah, right from the moment that I made the phone call, that was the beginning of the connection to who? My family. Where do I come from? My family. Who brought me into this world? My mom and dad. And who brought them into this world, their parents and their ancestry and my culture and where I come from and all of it. And my brothers and, you know, relatives and friends that used to pray for me and look for me. Like here, you know, my parents, my brothers used to come here with my dad and look for me with some of my friends that I had strayed from. You know, so, you know, like in a tangible sense, that was the beginning of connection back to self. Is like finally breaking that line of isolation that was, you know, and the main impediments to that emotionally were fear and shame, right? And guilt. And then being able to just like get past that for one moment, make that phone call. And all of a sudden, you know, the next day, my brother and my cousin are driving me back to Saskatoon. And, you know, within two days, that was on a Saturday, Monday, my parents and my dad has made the arrangements to me get into detox center for a week, you know. And then you go into treatment and then you start, you know, getting into recovery and, and doing the work. And, you know, and I lived with my family for the first year. I signed a contract with my mom and dad, you know, went back to school, started talking to my daughter, signed over all my paychecks to my dad. He gave me 40 bucks a week for coffee and cigarettes. You know, I had a curfew of 11 o'clock, you know, so I was with my family, mm-hmm. right? So as I was going through the process of reconnecting with myself, I was really surrounded with that shell, right? That shell that gives me everything who I am, you know, you know, the, the two individuals that brought me into this world, that DNA, you know, at a fundamental level is a big piece of who I am. I got to go into that fold immediately. And it's important to highlight that a lot of people that I, especially in the end, and to this day, a lot of people that I, that I meet that come in, in, into recovery, they don't have that. They don't, they don't have that. They don't have a strong nuclear family that they can go back to that like, just gives them that armor, right? That gives them accountability and a place where, you know, I mean, like really, I needed all that. I needed to be in a really tight cage. You know, I needed to have a curfew. I needed to have my dad drive me to meetings for the first six months every single night and pick me up. Mm-hmm. I needed all of that because I will, I didn't know how to manage my life, right? And the reality is my best thinking is brutal. Like my ideas are always the worst for me. Mm-hmm. They are, right? Like, and that's the thing. All of it, if we go pre-recovery, all of it was, was a stroll away from responsibility, personal responsibility. Mm-hmm. But by the end of it, who do you have left to blame as a 34-year-old man? At some point, if you can't accept personal responsibility for the conditions of your life, there's no avenue for freedom. Wow. Can you expand on that thought? Yeah. I mean, it's impossible for me to create positive change in my life if I can't come to terms with the undeniable fact that I am the master of my own disasters. Sure, there's different factors 
I talked about early childhood, a fear factor with my relationship with my dad that for sure had an effect of where I ended up. But how long do you function and exist casting blame on those experiences as being the things that drive you? Lots of people have adversity in their lives. Lots of people have a lot of painful things. And a lot of people I know have far greater challenges, far bigger pains, far bigger traumas than anything that I have an idea or can relate to. So that line is, 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 is not fixed for everybody. But from my own experience, and that's all I can relate about is, yeah, there was lots of choices made along the way. Like from the first time I drank at the age of 14, I knew I was going against my parents' will. I knew it. It was hidden. A lot of the things that I did in active addiction, partying and thinking I was being living my best life were in direct contradiction to everything I was raised by. So, yeah, I made a lot of choices along the way. By the end, squarely on my shoulders. So I think as painful as that is to accept, the reality is it's the foundation for freedom. It's the foundation for, for because if I can accept that my thinking is flawed, that the choices that I've made have ended me up in this chair at this moment in time, and I need to get to a different place, there's a platform for being able to, but, but if, if, if it's always somebody else's fault, how can I change my life? You know, if it's always somebody, if, if you're always looking outwards to blame somebody for your problems, how do you embrace the solutions? If it, everybody else has to change. If it's always somebody else's fault for you having the problems that you have in your life, then all those people outside of you have to change for, for, for your life to change. Right. And so, I mean, you know, and that's the big part of it too, is, you know, we talk about self-will addiction is very much about self-centeredness at the core of the disease. It's a very, very self-centered disease, you know, and it keep, unfortunately makes it impossible for you to put the needs of others ahead of yourself. You may have that ability. You may have those choices at a certain point in time, but as it moves forward, you lose that, you know? And so, yeah, the solutions always have to come from other people because yeah, the problem is I have a chronic thinking problem, right? Like I said, between my ears, a lot of negative conversations have taken place there. A lot of negative ideas have transpired there. A lot of decisions and courses of action were born right between my ears. So in order to challenge that, to create something that counterbalances and starts riding the ship the other way, I have to have the willingness to listen to other people. Humility. Big time. You know, so living with your parents at the age of 34, 11 o'clock curfew, handing your che checks over to your dad, him driving you to meetings and picking you up, which is embarrassing. It's humility. It teaches you to be humble. And all of that was born of desperation because I had nowhere else to go. Right. But it taught me humility. And like I said, I don't know a lot of people that have that family structure to impose that on them. Was it easy? No. There's many times that year I was like, I wanted to say, screw this. And I almost left once, you know, but thank God I didn't. And, you know, to this day, my family's my biggest source of strength. And also, you know, obviously a lot of mentors in recovery and people that, that I'm on that path with. Yeah. Yeah. Going into that, like having gone through all that, having all of those realizations around the importance of your identity, humility, 
Um, taking responsibility, not blaming others. Have you used that to help the people who are also going through recovering? I know you're attending meetings on a regular basis and you talk a lot about the service aspect being like the most, one of the most important pieces of that. Your experiences, like how are you able to have conversations with other people who, like you said, may not have that strong family structure to go back to? Well, you know, I think... Yeah, a few things there. Well, first of all, I mean, I think if I take it back to identifying the fact and and now from my current perspective, going through the recovery process, having an an intimate understanding of the fact that self-centeredness is at the core of the disease of addiction, right? So if that's the core, the opposite of that has to be selflessness, right? So obviously everything that I've gone through, all my experiences, for example, within the context of 12-step recovery and the fellowship that I belong to. And I, and I attend meetings in a couple of different fellowships, but primarily for me, it's one fellowship that, that, that looks at, doesn't matter what the substance is, it just looks at addiction. And so going through that process, you know, you start, as I said, you know, it's a 12-step process. You know, you begin with step one, you move on to step two, step three, you know, step one is about surrender, right? Admitting powerlessness and manageability, Step two is about admitting, you know, that there may be something greater than you that can that can help you and then restore you to sanity because that was absolutely insane. And then you move into step three where you make a conscious decision to turn your will and your life over to something greater than yourself, you know, something and it's spiritual, nothing religious, you know, and then there's an inventory process in four and five where you really, you know, do a deep, deep, deep look at yourself and you share that with somebody else, you know, and then there's an amend process, you know, there's a process where you look at your defects of character and your shortcomings and you work and you ask for help to get rid of those. And then, you know, there's, you know, steps eight and nine are the first two steps where you really start bringing other people into your recovery. So step eight is about the willingness to make a list of everybody you've ever harmed. Step nine is making direct or indirect amends wherever possible, you know, and then 10, 11, 12 are about that we call them the spiritual maintenance steps, you know, 10 is about taking accountability and admitting where your faults lie immediately, right? And doing whatever you need to do in the moment to deal with them, you know? And then you get to 12 and 12 is about service. It's about giving back, right? As a result of having, you know, an awakening and, and a sense of awareness through this journey, right? Of restitution. And and so, yeah, I think the experience is like, for me, when I look at the family dynamics that I went through as something that was so integral in helping me along with the 12-step process, along with my recovery meetings, along with the fellowships, you know, along with my, my sponsors, you know, that, that helped me over the years. I belong to that community and I'm there to share my experience and strength and my hope, right? And, and to, to try and share that message and to help somebody, right? And so it's interesting too now, that like when you put yourself in that spiritual space, I call it the front lines, you know, I need to be at meetings so that because if, if what happens, if I go to meet, if I've gotten everything that I need to go and I disappear, if everybody that recovers and gets it, all the beautiful things in their life back doesn't go anymore, what happens to all the new people that are coming in, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. there was a whole pile of people that were there waiting when I got there that helped me, that didn't know who I was, right? right? That spent hours and energy and everything, on everything, all, all their consciousness to help me out. And so, yeah, you get... When you're there, you get to be in a position where your voice matters, your experience matters, the light that you carry, how you live your life, the energy that you project, 
all the healing that you have gone through is powerful, right? And so it has it has an energetic transmittability, I would call it, you know, for lack of a better word. I think I just made up a word. I love it. <laughs> yeah, you know, so yeah, you just, you know, you, you. it's important for me to be there. Hey, number one, I'm always an addict. Yeah. And so I constantly need to be practicing recovery because reality is I'm always one bad decision away. Is I'm not going to make that decision? No. But service is really important. So, you know, I sponsor guys, you know, and as a simple example, it's crazy how my experience is directly related to people that come into my life. So, for example, I've had a sponsor, a sponsee. There was a very painful experience that I went through with my family that we had just like in the, in the course of my recovery, a lot of stuff about the family came up and some seriously challenging topics about the relationship that my mom and dad had. So out of a process of looking at my recovery and my family being around me and that discussion, you know, there was a forum every Sunday that we, at 6 p.m. we had a teleconference and one of my best friends would facilitate it as a mediator. But my, one of my brothers was in New York at the time. The other one was in Vancouver. And so a couple of years in, you know, that forum became a vehicle for our family to talk about other challenges, other issues that affected everybody else. You know, and so there was something that specifically that was related to my mom and dad's relationship and how changes need to take place there. And so we were able to have those difficult conversations. Fast forward three years, four years later, I'm sponsoring a guy. We're going through the steps. We're having that the relationship where I'm helping him just go through the same process that my sponsor helped me through. And if he doesn't have the exact same challenges come up with his mom and dad. The exact same. Wow. Like identical. The same issue, the same difficult conversations had to have. And having gone through it, I was able to help in that situation to, to translate my, my, my experience. And I don't think that's another coincidence that that guy was brought into my life with that same dynamic. And the reality is that young man has helped me more than I've ever helped him. Right. And I could tell you a million stories about that. Right. But like the reality is in every relationship where I think somebody's coming to ask me for help every single time, my higher power is putting those individuals in my path to help me, to teach me. Tell me more about that. What did you learn from him? Well, so from him, I learned so much more about expanding my wings, Mm. just like really living in the moment having discipline spiritually in my meditation practice, having humility at a, at a far deeper level. It's a very wealthy guy, comes from a very wealthy family. You would think that would be easier. For humility, no. So there's lots he taught me, you know, and there's another gentleman that I sponsored, uh, that I've been sponsoring here for a few years. And, you know, he was going through some painful stuff re- relationship-wise and, you know, the lessons that, I, that as I was trying to help him walk through that, all the lessons and the spiritual principles that I was trying to to help him in order to navigate that difficult process he was going through, those were the lessons that I needed. Like they were like at the forefront of exactly the things that I was struggling with. And only in being able to participate in a process where God put somebody in my path to say, hey, bro, can you help me out? Can you take me through the steps? Will you sponsor me? Okay. 
as I'm taking him through that process, everything that I need to learn currently in my life on that day in this season is exactly what's being highlighted in our relationship, you know? And so, you know, and then that translates itself to it with work, right? Like, you know, the current business that I have doing meal prep, you know, that was inspired by my mom going through cancer, 2011, 2012, and me starting to prepare all her meals because I didn't want her eating food from the hospital. So really concentrating on cancer fighting foods at the time and stocking their freezers, and, you know, to this day, the majority of what they eat, I get to cook for them. You know, it's pretty I, I, special. Yeah, like yeah. that's kind of full circle. Hey, yeah, you wow. know, yeah. Like and now, I'm serving my parents. Amazing, right? You know, another one of my best friends went through cancer, and I had the opportunity to tell her boyfriend, "Buy a stand up freezer. We're going to stock it with with cancer fighting foods." You know, and so yeah, like and with my parents, yeah, it's like it's it's crazy now. Like from a position where I was really, I felt like such an outcast in my own family. You know. I'm a black guy, so we have white sheep in our family. <laughs> you know, I so, like that. Yeah, you know, so yeah, now to, to have like the thing that I love to do the most is to share food with them. You know, that's that, what I like to share with anybody. You know that, right? And so to be able to serve my family in a real way, my mom and dad, as they get older, to help them try and eat as healthy as possible, to have the means and, and, and the talent and the skill and the, to do it and the opportunities is just a blessing. So... Okay. That is amazing. I love how that came full circle, how you were talking about, you know, your identity is heavily rooted in your family and how you're getting all the strength from them. And then out of recovery, serving others, sponsoring others, but then ultimately being able to serve your family with food, your gift. I think that's so, so special. Speaking of your business, <laughs> I know that there's some new ideas brewing yeah. and I would love for you to share about where you're taking your food journey next. Yeah. So like on a, you know, on a personal level, I love my friends, you know, and I have a dear, dear friend here named Carmelina and, you know, just like the great thing about food, you know, you refer to me as a master. I'm not a master. <laughs> like let's, let's, let's pretend she didn't edit, say that. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I love, you can always learn. There's so mm. much to learn, you know, mm. and we watched a documentary on Chef's Table sometime last fall, early last fall. She she knows me to the core. So she said there's an episode I'd like to watch. So she came over for dinner and then we watched an episode of Chef's Table and it was a Korean Buddhist monk, a woman named Jean Kwong. And she just like, she affected me in a really deep way, her story, right? And just like, she talked about intention in such a deep way, in a way that like, you know, I try to practice to live with intention. It's, a, it's always a practice. It's not easy, you know, but I try and do it to the best of my ability. You know, making the move back here a few years ago, intention was again, like really shown to me in a really profound way. I, I had participated in a in a New Year's Day sweat lodge ceremony with a bunch of guys from Northern Saskatchewan. And I did a lot of sweats in my first year of recovery. And it's been something, an important part of my journey, but I had been away from it for a while. And so January 1st of 2017, we do this sweat and I met this elder named Sam up there. And, you know, he shared a story, the legend of sweetgrass from the Cree people. And, you know, it, the, the central role, you know, the lesson in that was about intention, really living with intention, you know, at the next level. Right. And so I carried that with me when I moved here, you know, just like that spiritual practice and really trying to to live with intention, you know, so I translated a lot of that conversation that day and that experience into my gardening, for example, into, 
you know, a lot of things that I'm doing in my life, you know, for me, like, you know, I connect with my higher power in nature. You know, I spend a lot of time in the mountains and I'm doing a lot of things that, you know, just for example, like in the winter, winter was always something that I know it's difficult for a lot of people. Winter comes, we all shut down. Oh, I can't hike outdoors anymore, you know? So as a consequence of that day and that experience, and then I did that, that another New Year's Day sweat with those guys again, you know, intention became even more important. And so, you know, practicing acceptance at a deep, deeper level for me, just in a logical sense, we live in Canada, winter comes every year. Why do I dread it? Why do I not accept that reality? Why do I have to shut it all down? Mm-hmm. You know, so, okay, I'm going to keep doing stuff outdoors. So the hiking, you know, this year, the focus has been on snowboarding. You know, last year, I, I had a relationship with somebody that brought the gift of cross-country skiing into my life, you know? So all of that just gives me more opportunities to be connected, right? And to, and to understand intention and to place it, you know, in a more central role in my life. But so with Jean Kong, for example, you know, she talked about certain ingredients that she doesn't use in Buddhist temple cooking because they're very powerful. She talked about garlic, some peppers. She talked about some chilies and I think ginger. Certain times of the year she doesn't use them because physiologically they create an active response. And in Buddhist philosophy, especially in the practice of meditation, which is central, you're trying to calm everything down. And she talked about not using certain ingredients in her cooking at certain times because it will interfere with meditation. Like it just blew me away. I was like, okay, I don't even have an understanding of intention. Right? Like it just, you know, a friend sharing that with me, all of a sudden, what it did for me this last year was like just help me understand and, and, and just set the bar a little bit higher for really practicing intention and continuing to grow spiritually in everything that I do, you know. And so, yeah, in, in my own personal life and, you know, what I do for clients or what I cook, you know, I try to carry that stuff in, that energy, right? And so, yeah, I mean, as I told you, food is an important it's like it's a, it's a spiritual thing for me. It really is, right? You know, and I just think like we are so disconnected in this society. There's such a massive disconnection from food, for example, in people's daily lives. Everybody's skipping the dishes or pre factory produced food. Most kids don't even know have have, have an intuitive understanding that food grows in soil. They think it comes from the superstore or the grocery store. You know, that so with gardening, for example, you know, trying to share that with different people, sharing that with kids, just creating that connection, mm-hmm. which is important for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, and I said to you, you know, all of this also counters all the stuff with addiction, mm-hmm. right? Connection, 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 you know. Yes. So, yeah, now I'm just about to launch in a few weeks a delivery based online food business that is about meat and cheese. <laughs> So exciting. I am so excited for this. Okay. Tell me more because there's layers to this idea. Yeah. Again, you know, I think like, yeah, it's, uh, I was approached by an amazing young guy, a business guy in, in Calgary who he's a big force on social media in the city. He's got, you know, the biggest platform on Instagram on two platforms. He has well over 300,000 followers. And so, you know, he approached me on January 2nd, actually, gave me a call and we ended up talking and he wanted to get into the food business or something, selling d- delivery and food was the idea. And he was sitting on idea and 
you know, he put it in my ear. We talked about it and he's a very creative guy. So A, the fact that he approached me to do it was a big honor and very humbling. And yeah, so we decided to move ahead. And so it's going to be, we're going to be doing delivery business of charcuterie platters. That's what we're doing. You know, it's called meat and cheese, but really it's about on a bigger scale, the company and the idea and the philosophy is, is again, it all comes back to connection, right? It's about getting some really good food together and sharing it with, with your friends and your family and not playing a central role. And again, you know, as, as I alluded to earlier, the fact that I get to cook for a living, that I get to participate and actively have the opportunity to have a small role in something that is so important in everybody's life is powerful. And, you know, so here's another opportunity to do that. It's going to be about the food predominantly to start with, but we've got some ideas about like really using it as an opportunity to tell stories, right? To tell stories about, to create connection and community and culture in this city. You know, uh, the business is being born out of the pandemic, right? So it's a post-pandemic business. The The location that we're moving into is, a, is very much influenced by the pandemic that we're in. So yeah, we're going to use, you know, I'm not going to say too much about some of the things we're going to be doing moving forward, but uh, we're going to be using it as a vehicle, you know, in the middle of our city to talk to interesting people, to introduce and create connection and build community and to shape our interactions with people while we make a living to use all of it as an opportunity to engage positively, to create change that we want to see by what we're doing and to give voice to people that, that are also striving to, to, to create community and, and to make the world a better place, basically, you know? So I'm very excited about this project, you know, and looking forward to, yeah, you know, it's going to be lots of hard work, but yeah, I'm really excited about bringing it out to the table and letting see, letting people enjoy it. Well, I can't tell you how excited I am. I will happily be a taste tester if you're open to that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Who doesn't love charcuterie? Come on. Perhaps, Come on. Perhaps you can, uh, you, you can have a charcuterie board in the middle of your podcast table once in a while. <laughs> you're coming back. <laughs> when you do the launch, yeah, we're coming, you're coming back. If people wanted to follow that launch and, and be kind of like, at the forefront of that and get connected, how can they get in contact with you? Uh, should they be following you anywhere? Yeah. So the, the, the best way to get in touch with me and kind of see what I'm doing is if you follow me on Instagram, I'm not on Facebook, any other platforms. So on Instagram at connect YYC, which is spelled K N K T. It's an acronym for connect. Uh, very funny. We've been talking a lot about yes. connection. Yeah. So yeah, my Instagram page is at K-N-K-T-Y-Y-C at Connect Y-Y-C. And sometime next week, we will be introducing the Instagram page for the for the new business is going to be launched. And obviously, you know, there'll be news about that on my page. Perfect. So yeah, everyone who's interested in this beautiful connection of charcuterie, I cannot wait. I'm so, so, so excited for this. They can follow you at your Instagram, then you'll be putting up uh, updates there. So yes. Yeah. That's fabulous. Daniel, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's a very powerful story. Are there any parting words that you want to yeah, leave us with today? Well, first and foremost, thank you for reaching out to me and, you know, asking me to do this, you know. Yeah, it's it's nice and it's humbling and it's and I know it's always a blessing to have an opportunity to to be able to share your story with anybody, you know, and 
to do it, you know, you know, publicly and, and, you know, in, in the world of recovery, you know, anonymity is a big thing. And, you know, I actually disclosed this past year on my Instagram, you know, that I just, I celebrated 15 years clean, you know, I did it very publicly. So I think like, honestly, for me, the most important thing is that from my experience is that like, really, I know all of us can have struggles internally right? The conversations that take place between our ears are not always based in reality, you know, and they're just there. And to have other people come into that space to really share what's going on, to be honest about it, and, you know, to just not be afraid to ask for help. There's nothing that's insurmountable in life, if you're willing to ask help for help, right? You know, and yeah, you know, like, honestly, I'm not, you know, I don't have any words of advice, man. You know, I'm the last guy you want to ask for advice. You know, everything that, that has helped me get to this point has been the ability and the willingness to listen to other people, mm. right? And I'll throw a caveat in there by saying to listen to other people who have your best interest at heart, because I don't just listen to everybody, right? But listen to people that really love you, that have you know, your best interest at heart and that are going to be honest and truthful with you and, and, and demanding when they need to be, you know, and then the best way to help somebody is the best way to help yourself is to help somebody else. Very often when I'm struggling with things, if I can help, if I take, if I get presented with an opportunity to help somebody else, it takes me completely away from, it's not like I'm trying to escape it, but it just takes me out of myself because mm-hmm. very often I can get caught up in a, in a certain line of thinking, a certain stream of consciousness, and it gets insular. And having an opportunity to help somebody else will take me out of that, right? And kind of allow me to, to put it in perspective. Mm-hmm. Really, it's not that big of a deal because somebody else is going through something else, right. you know? So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I can't, I'm, I'm not the guy to come to for advice, but, uh, you know, it's just there's there's always hope, right? You know, there was a point in my life where I thought I was very much buried under the illusion that I couldn't face the reality. I couldn't face the decisions I'd made. I couldn't face the people that I'd hurt in my life. And nothing is further from the truth. You know, there's always forgiveness. There's always acceptance. There's always, there's a lot of compassion in the world. There's a lot of empathy, you know, there's lots of love in the world, right? You know, there's lots of love in the world. And you know, I think it's important to, to state that in this past year, obviously, with the pandemic, there's just like so many dividing voices and narratives and uh, a lot of anger, a lot of rage associated with, with everything that's going on. And I know it's not, it hasn't been an easy year for, for a lot of people. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, it's important to understand that like for me, my feelings can, they're just feelings. There's absolutely no permanence to feelings. They come and they go. They come and they go. So whatever I'm feeling now, if it's positive, negative, yeah, it's here. Sit in it, accept it, identify it, but it's not going to last forever. So even in the worst moments, if I can remember, this too shall pass, right? This too shall pass, you know, and not being suffocated by that. Yeah, and I mean, God, there's so many amazing, beautiful people in this world that are doing amazing things that are helping people that are making this world a better place. There's, there's lots of positive energy. Mm-hmm. So I think for myself, that's an important reminder that I need to focus on the positive. 
I can spend a lot of energy, mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual, fixating on how bad this world is or who's up to this and who's up to that. At the end of the day, just look in the mirror, do what I can to to be positive today, you know, in my own little space. Because I, I don't have the power to control anything, let alone my own life uh, at the best of circumstances. So yeah, just there's always help. Just find somebody to talk to, you know, and yeah, life is beautiful. Thank you for listening to The Root Podcast. If you're interested in learning more or would like to share your story, go to our website, therootpodcast.com to get in touch.